Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning. The uh, letter of the Apostle Paul to Titus. We started into our, our study last week, uh, and we began by observing, or at least I would affirm, it, the, uh, the timeliness and the application of this letter. Timeliness, because Paul is addressing a situation in Crete where the church had been established, but was seeing a time of growth and needed to make some adjustments to that, and that's kind of where we're at. And then also the the applicability of this letter because the cultural setting of Crete is in so many ways uh, like us. Crete had a rich culture. It was a very uh, an established nation. At one time, it had been a very powerful nation. Uh, had a lot going for it. But it was at the same time um, just shot through with moral corruption and chaos and confusion. It was not in a good place. Titus had his work cut out for him, to put it um, directly, and so do we, as we would manifest the character of Christ in our environment. So we started that way last week. Last week, we talked a lot about structure moving forward, about organizing the church, right? Um, we talked about the fact that the instruction Paul gave for uh, establishing the order of the churches in Crete uh, was tailored to Crete. There's not a one-size-fit-all. What Paul said for Titus in Crete was for Crete. And that the, if you look at the New Testament and you follow the early history of the church, the administrative forms that were established for the church would reflect whatever was there. If you had a culture that had a single strong leader in the community, the church generally would form the same way. If you had a, if you had a culture where it was a kind of a body of elders or a group decision-making process, the church typically would reflect that. So the church, as it developed, would reflect in a positive way. Obviously, we don't want to reflect the negatives of our culture, the sins of our culture. We will have to deal with them because they're part of who we are. But in terms of the church's structure, it would usually reflect uh, what was going on in that culture. So uh, looking at it from an outside, the church would have many things in common with the culture around it. Um, that's the character of the church in its administration. It will reflect the world around us, both positively and negatively. Talking about individuals, we should begin to move radically away from the culture we're in because we do live in a sin-stained, scarred world, right? We also noted that whereas the church would have various organizational forms, various organizational structures uh, that would be flexible. What is not flexible, what is universal, is that we as individuals should manifest the character of Christ. And that is unique and consistent wherever we find ourselves. In every culture, the character of Christ manifested in goodness, holiness, righteousness should be consistent. That's the universal. And unless we get the inside part right, Christ's character formed in us, what the church looks like on the outside is irrelevant. It doesn't matter how well we structure or organize or what format we use. None of that matters if inside we're not structured, if we're not formed the right way. So that's where we're at last week. I also noted, by way of reminder, that we call ourselves a fellowship. Gateway Christian Fellowship is our name. And we don't talk a lot about that. Uh, probably this would be a good time to talk a little more about it. We, we're a fellowship because we share things in common. We have something that we hold in common. And what we hold in common, I would suggest, is first and foremost the desire to 
individually grow in the knowledge of Christ, that Christ's character would be formed in us. I made reference last week to that incredible, incredible statement that Paul makes in the Galatian letter when he tells the Galatian church, I am again in travail or I am again in labor over you until Christ be formed in you. That's the one thing we should all be desiring. That's the one thing we should all share in common is that desire that Christ's character be formed within us. And then, secondly, that Christ's character be manifested in us collectively. That we as a body would manifest, thirdly, to our community, the character of Christ. Christ first formed in us, Christ's character formed in our fellowship, and finally Christ's character manifested to the world. That's what we hold in common. So that brings us to this point of the letter, and we're going to pick it up right where we left off. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And we read that verse last week, so we're going to start there now. Paul writes this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with teaching, that he may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and ask that as we look to it, we would hear from you, Lord. That's our desire, Lord, this morning. We want to hear from you because as we hear from you, our hearts are changed, and that's our greatest need. We pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, if you have a Bible... If you're holding a written Bible, I don't know about the phone Bibles or the, or the Bibles on devices as much, but if you have a written Bible, a book, you'll, you'll probably see at the, at the top of this section like a little paragraph title or a chapter title. And those are useful. Those are good. It helps us keep track of where we are in the book. You do need to know those are not part of the text. They're in addition. They're useful, but they're not like divinely inspired, right? Uh, and typically, if you have a written Bible, what your paragraph topic says is something like qualifications for church leadership, qualifications for deacons and elders, or something like that. And that phrase will appear at actually numerous places, especially in First and Second Timothy and Titus. You see that kind of wording, qualifications for church leadership or, or, or something like that. Um, and that's good. That's good. It's good that we have these lists that lay out for us what a church leader should, should be, what they should look like, right? And typically what happens is, um, it happened in my experience, it happened in, in Pastor Joyce's experience, it's happened in the experience of others in this congregation. When a person expresses a desire to go into like, full-time ministry and you wish to be recognized or credentialed through some form of a body, there's a whole process, and sooner or later you end up, and it doesn't matter what denomination or group you're part of, by whatever name, you end up sitting in an office being asked questions, and letters of reference is being read. I see expressions on faces now. You've been through this process. You know what it's all about. And then when we're done with that, these lists kind of get put away until there's a problem. And then there was a problem, the list comes back out, and we can see where the problem was you know, compared to the list. And that's all valid. 
That's a, there should be a process before any group, whether a church or a group of churches or a denomination, whatever you want to call it, before they identify somebody as a leader, there should be a process by which that person's evaluated, right? That's good, right? But the problem is, you know, we kind of, we kind of limit this to that. And these lists go back on the shelf rather than see what these lists really are. And it goes on from what we read. It goes on quite a bit. It's not simply, you know, a check off the box if you want to be a minister thing. It's a description of the character of Christ. It's a description of how, what we all should look like as Christ's character is being formed in us. And we're all in that process. Because none of us are there yet, nor will any of us be there yet until we're on the other side. So we're on this, this, we're in this process of Christ's character. If we're giving him the room and the opportunity to do it, if we're doing the things we should be doing, if we're in his word, if we're in fellowship, we're engaged in ministry, we're spending time in prayer and devotion, we're in the word. If we're doing those things, we're giving God the raw materials to work with to form his character in us. He will do the forming of the character. Paul told the Galatian church, until Christ be formed in you. We can't do it ourselves. This is not something we, I don't get to build Jesus in me. The best I could do is do the stuff I have to do and open the door, and then he is faithful to build Christ in me. So that's what we're after when we look at these lists. In these verses, we have a really good description of what someone in whom the character of Christ is, is well-developed and being developed will look like. So what does it look like? Let's look at the list. Now, for the most part, this list, and as it goes on through the rest of the chapter, into the next chapter, is pretty obvious. You know, phrases like, not self-willed. That doesn't require a lot of exposition, right? We know what it is to not always insist on having your way, right? Not quick-tempered. Ouch. Pretty self-explanatory. Self-controlled. Yeah. We all know what that is. So that, I don't think that requires. But there is some stuff here that raises, frankly, some pretty big questions, like the very first one, right? Very first one. Paul writes this. He said, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Wait a minute. So you're telling me that to be a leader in the church, you have to be a man, and you have to be a man that's only had one wife. Is that what it means? Well, it kind of looks that way. And, and, of course, we believe in taking Scripture literally, right? I love this verse. I really do. And one of the reasons I love it, it's a really good way, it's a good exercise in understanding how we read our Bibles. Because we do affirm that Scripture's always taken literally, right? And we do that until taking it literally simply doesn't make any sense. And there are times when simply taking Scripture as being absolutely literal to be applied absolutely literally simply doesn't make sense. I would observe that nobody here has ever plucked an eye out. You know what I'm referring to, right? Jesus said, I offend you, pluck it out. That's not meant literally, right? If your hand offends you, none of us have done that. That's intended to mean take those kind of sins extremely seriously and do whatever you have to do to deal with them. It's a figure of speech. It's called speaking with hyperbole, right? 
We apply the truth literally, right? So we have to do a reasonable amount of thinking. That's why he gave us praise. So in this particular passage, Paul says, the husband of one wife. Does that mean that is God's requirement for leadership in the church? Look carefully at the text. What is the actual requirement in the text? Above reproach. And some of you have Bibles that say, if any man is above reproach, others, I'm going to take a poll. How many of you have a Bible that says, if any man is above reproach? How many of you, the Bible says that? Okay, got a handful there. Mine does, okay. How many have a Bible that says, if any one is above reproach? Those are right. The word man's not there. Now, one of the things we say when I'm teaching my students in translation is one of the reasons we look to the Greek text is that our translations are great, by the way. We have phenomenal Bibles. But in any translations, two things happen. Things get lost and things get added. It's, it's a limitation of translation. It's just real, it's a real world. So to make sense out of this, some translators say you add the word man. It's not there. Right? There's no manuscript of which I'm aware in the original text that adds the word man. Anyone. So if anyone is above reproach, and what's really interesting about that, uh, that's verse 6, verse 7 also says above reproach. If you look ahead to the second chapter in verse 5, it reads this way, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Verse 8, above reproach. That is what is consistently repeated in this passage. So whatever is done in terms of church leadership and the people involved, What's the highest priority? That we be above reproach, the word of God not be dishonored, the name of God not be discredited. That's the requirement. So then he moves on to say this, the husband of one wife. Now that is what it says in English, right? If you want to take that literally, I mean absolutely literally, I mean word for word literally, okay? The husband is one wife. What does that mean? Does that mean somebody that has been married and divorced could be a church leader? Probably not. How about somebody who's never been married? Because when I learned math, zero wasn't one any more than 12 was one. If you want to apply this passage literally, you have to say that to be a leader in the church, you must be married. Now, that's problematic. Because as best we can tell, the guy that wrote the letter wasn't. Now, that's a hot, I know that's a hot discussion among biblical scholars. Some say Paul was married. Some say Paul wasn't. Paul makes it pretty clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that at least by the time he was writing then, he wasn't. So who knows what happened, right? All kinds of speculation. Titus, the recipient of this letter, no evidence he was married. So you have a problem if you're going to insist on being married, right? Well, how, what does it mean then by the husband of one wife? Well, here's the real fun part. In first century Greek, there is no word for husband. None. Nor is there a word for wife. Those words did not come into use for about three or four more centuries. So if you want to know what it really says literally, okay, and I'm going to give it to you in Greek first so you get the cadence of it, because the cadence is kind of important. It is mias yinekas angra, a one-woman man. That's it. That's the literal re reading. If, you, if you're called into ministry, you've got to be a one-woman man. What does that mean? Faithfulness. That means characterized by 
faithfulness. And it is up to individual churches in individual settings to figure out exactly what that means in their setting. Faithfulness to our spouses. Because the alternative is what? Not above reproach. And brings discredit upon the gospel, right? But what about the man part? Is that actually a requirement or is that Paul accommodating a cultural norm? Remember, in its structure, the church will reflect the environment it's in. Would we likely find anything in the public arena of first century Crete administrated by a woman? No. It would have been out of the question. Because in both Greek or Hellenistic culture and Roman culture and Jewish culture, that just didn't happen. It just wasn't there. So I would argue that Paul, in terms of the gender of his comment, a man is accommodating an expectation of local culture. And that, by the way, is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Because we have multiple examples throughout Scripture where women were in leadership positions. Just one example is a woman by the name of Hunia, referred to at the end of the Roman epistle, that is described by Paul as being outstanding among the apostles. Pretty significant. Now, a lot of effort has been made to turn Hunia into a masculine name. There is nothing new under the sun. But she, by every indication, she was a woman. And there are numerous other examples of women who were leaders in the church. But it was not done where the installation of a woman in leadership would discredit the church because the priority was what? To remain above reproach, to not discredit the church, to not cause a stumbling block keeping people from coming to the church. So Paul doesn't have so much this divine order as being concerned with how the church is perceived. That was his priority, above reproach, right? The choice of a man would be assumed in Hellenistic, Roman, or the Jewish world, and Paul is not trying to cause disorder, but order. Paul was extremely concerned with how the church would perceived. It would be reasonable for men to take leadership roles because that was assumed, right? The next big question uh, is the issue of family, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation, or rebellion. Some have suggested that if you have like one, you know, wild kid, you shouldn't be in ministry because of what this says. That's not what it says. It says that a pastor's home, their children are raised in a manner that reflects and brings credit to the gospel. I, I've known people in ministry and they have one kid that goes nuts. Well, I guess I'm done. That's biblical. No, no. How you respond to that is may, may raise a question of, of your testimony. What you do about that, and we can talk a lot about that, but this is not intended to create some kind of absolute standard. Again, it's a question of conducting ourselves as a church that the testimony of Christ is honored and held up. What does concern me greatly is when there's a problem in a, in a ministerial family and there's a lack of compassion for the one that has wandered from the faith. Because the children of those who are called to ministry are as likely or susceptible to the ways of the world of, as anyone and should be equally treated with grace and mercy. Right? So there are some interesting issues here, right? 
Verse 7, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. This is a really good one to talk about. You know, I I love our church. Pastor Joyce and I have invested more um, time, energy, and effort in this particular body of believers than any other ministry we've ever had. Again, I love this church. I hope you do. I love it when people call Gateway their church. I love it when I overhear a conversation and I hear somebody in church say, my church, but you won't hear me use those words. Because it means something else as pastor when I say my church. And it's not. It is not. Those of us called to ministry are called to be stewards. And that just means you're managing something that belongs to somebody else according to their interests and their priorities. And there will be a day when either I walk out or get carried out. When it's not my job anymore. And I'm going to have to answer for how I managed what he put in my hands. So it is extremely important. So if you don't hear me refer to it as my church, you know why. It goes on to say, oh, this is a hot one. If you hop on down to verse 9. I know we're we're, we're, trying to skip the ones that are really obvious and go to the ones that are more challenging. Not addicted to wine. That's one people want to talk about. Um, The New American Standard is not very far off when it uses the word addicted. And we can expand that. None of us as believers, how many remember the old, oh, the the group's name is gone. Who did the record? Help me out. Addicted to Jesus. Are you A to J? Who did that one? Anybody remember? That's the only thing we should be addicted to is Jesus. Yeah. Newsboys. Guys, let me down. Newsboys. A to J. Are you addicted to Jesus? That's the only thing any of us should be addicted to. Paul said, I will not be mastered by anything. And anything that exerts an addictive influence over us, we need to put space between us and it. Right? That's what Jesus was talking about, plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand. I will take whatever steps necessary to ensure that I am not controlled by anything other than Jesus. Right? Now, as far as the wine itself, Jesus drank wine. A lot of effort has been put into saying that he didn't drink Alcoholic wine, he did. Uh, We can talk about it more if you want. But never a single incident, even the slightest hint of anything that would have discredited his father. And we should be able to say the same. And that is the absolute, that we would never discredit our father, right? Um, Verse 8 has some really wonderful positive sides about these qualifications, descriptions of all of us. Hospitable. You'll have to forgive me, this is my soapbox. How much time do we have? I could go on for hours on this one, right? Um, I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but I'm going to bet that all the people, we've got at least a dozen think individuals in this room that have been through one of these interview processes with a ministry of one form or another, and you've been asked all kinds of questions from this list, and I will bet not one of you was ever asked a question about hospitality. And I have seen ministers removed from ministry because they messed up on one of these, as they probably should have been, right? But I have never heard of one removed because they were a rotten host, right? In fact, everyone I've ever asked about whatever process they went through, right, this doesn't even come up. Really? It's on the same list. Must be just as important, right? Hospitality. Um, the, the word um, xenophobia, 
That's like part of our, of our English language now, our English culture, to be afraid of strangers. It's usually applied to the immigration debate. You know, if you don't like immigration, you're xenophobic, you're afraid of foreign. And that's a word, right? But you know what a better word is? This word? Philoxenia, the love of strangers. Paul requires that those who would be leaders in church have a, a longing to sit with strangers. You know, okay, how many of you, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hands on this one, how many of you are really not comfortable with personal evangelism? That eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation with somebody maybe you've never met before? Just cold call, personal evangelism? Let me, tell you what, nice to meet you, my name's John, let's talk about heaven and hell and your salvation. <laughs> now, if you're not comfortable with that, raise your hand. Okay, you know when my hand is raised? It is not as an illustration to how to raise your hand. I'm not either. I don't like it. Some are good at it. Have I ever told you guys about Bill Weston? Bill Weston was a guy down in Homer. I worked with him on his house. He's a great carpenter. This guy was a personal evangelism machine. Uh, he would pick me up. We're going to go work on his house. He's a great boss. First step, first stop, the bakery. Every morning, go to the bakery, load up with some goodies, and this guy, in five minutes, will be talking to some total stranger about their soul. How do you do that? I don't, he had a gift. He had a calling. But he had something else. Apple fritters. Yeah. Yeah. This is an old bakery. It's not, it's not in business anymore. I'm sorry, in Homer. And they had these killer apple fritters, right? And he'd invite somebody for coffee and an apple fritter. And then, boom. Why? Because food has a way of disarming people. And so if you're the type that you're just not really good at it, and so you don't do it, just find an environment where you're sitting down to break bread together to share. Now, what we normally hear when Pastor Joyce and I talk to people about this to try to encourage this is, well, you've you got to see my house. My house is really bad, right? Entertain them outside. Now, not, you have to wait for the summer. <laughs> Take them out someplace for coffee. we got a great one right over there. Okay, so, but use the tools that are available because some of us aren't gifted that way. I will never be able to interact with someone at a personal level the way Bill Wesson did, but he can't do what I did, right? But we can all make the effort or we can all, I should say, begin by learning to appreciate and love the stranger because he loved us when we were strangers and he exerted hospitality to us. He Loved us. That's a really important one for us. Uh, loving what is good, prioritizing what's good in our life. Sensible, understanding what makes for wholeness. That's what that word means. Um, just understanding what is right and pursuing it. Understanding the things of the faith, devout. And then there's that self-control one. Uh. And finally, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word. Do we love, honor, cherish, and pay attention to his word? Because that is the only way his character is ever formed in us. If we love, honor, cherish, and pay attention to the word of God. So here's the point. You know, we talk about qualifications. I much prefer to call these qualities. And if you have specific questions about any of these, I would love to sit down over a cup of coffee. Can't provide a fritter. They haven't found any good that yet. But a cup of coffee, we can talk about that. But here's the, here's the point. Here's the point. Are we growing individually and corporately in these things? That should be the desire that we hold together, that we all cherish together as a fellowship. 
We've seen growth. I praise God. I praise God for that. I'm really, really glad for that. And we're going to continue to attempt to provide the administrative structure to accommodate that. That's part of the volunteer stuff out there. But if we're not growing as individuals, if his character is not being formed in us, the rest really just doesn't matter. It's just paint on the side of a building. In our own personal relationship with Christ, if his character is not being progressively formed in me, direction is more important than position. We've talked about that. And in our fellowship, collectively, his character being made manifest in us. Paul said to that wonderful Galatian church, I am again in travail with you until Christ be formed in you. Father, we thank you, Lord, that in your great patience toward us, Lord, you, you call us, you called us, Father, when we were in darkness. Here in his love. Not that we loved you, but you loved us. Right? Father, our goal is to manifest Christ to those around us. We know that's the very reason for which you've left us here on planet Earth, to manifest Christ. Father, to do that, we desperately need Jesus. We desperately need the power of your spirit, Lord, the truth of your word. So, Father, our prayer this morning is to, you'd first open our eyes to truly see how great our need is. How really, really desperate and dependent we are, wholly and completely. On, the, on your work in us to establish your kingdom in us and then, Father, deliberately by choice through the things we read, the things we look at, the things we do, the things we talk about, the things we value, the things we pursue, open the door for you to work your kingdom in us. Father, we all want to be part of Jesus being built in our fellowship, in our presence, so that he can, through this body, reach a lost and dying world. Help us, we pray, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.